Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Todd Buchholz, host of our five-part series, An Emerging Energy Framework for the 22nd Century. You can follow me at EconTodd. Joining me today for the third episode of the series are Bloomberg's Javier Bloss and Jack Farchi, co-authors of The World for Sale. Javier is Bloomberg News's chief energy correspondent, and Jack is the media company's senior reporter on commodities and energy. My conversation with Javier and Jack is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Well, Jack Farchi and Javier Blas, uh, thanks for being with us today. The World for Sale, a fascinating book, tales of commodity traders that would seem to rival, oh, pirate stories. I can imagine Disney's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean being amended to have commodity traders on the ride as we find out about their daring dues and so on. Uh, and the intersection between politics and commodity traders and wealth is a story that you've revealed in a dramatic and sometimes thrilling way. In fact, um, why don't we start off just to tease our listeners today. Jack, tell us uh, briefly one of your favorite stories of a commodity trader swooping into an emerging market country and either saving it or devastating it. <laughs> One of the most amazing stories and probably the one that encouraged us to write this book was the story of the Libyan civil war in 2011 when a group of rebels rose up against Colonel Gaddafi and there was a, a revolution brewing, uh, fighting between the Libyan government and, and the rebels. But the rebels had this pretty intractable problem, which was they didn't have enough fuel. And so, you know, while Libya is this huge oil producer, the Gaddafi government controlled all the refineries, the rebels didn't have any fuel they couldn't really fight. And then in stepped a Brit, actually, uh, Ian Taylor, the CEO, as he was then, of VTOL, the world's largest oil trading company. He flew into Benghazi in the middle of the civil war, struck a deal with the rebels, and then started shipping gasoline and diesel to the Libyan rebels, ended up delivering them a billion dollars worth of fuel before he started getting paid back. And with that extremely daring deal, you know, he was delivering a billion dollars worth of fuel to this bunch of rebels that didn't have a government were barely internationally recognized, didn't have a central bank. You know, if the war had gone a different way, God knows what would have happened to, to his money and changed the course of the war. And, and you know, with that billion dollars worth of fuel, they came through and, and, and won the war. So that was really an example of a commodity trader coming in, making a decision, making a decision not for political reasons. He wasn't trying to shift the balance of the war. He was trying to make money effectively, but doing exactly that and, and having a big political impact. But now, why did he think he was going to be paid back? What kind of deal could rebels have struck? You know, in my career, I've been a partner and advisor to 
Julian Robertson or George Soros and, and various others. And I don't know one of those who would have allowed me to walk into his office and say, hey, you know, let's have a billion dollars and place it on the color marked rebel. Uh, and maybe you'll get paid back. And if you get paid back, oh, you know, we could charge them a premium. Well, what that premium would have to be, you know, a thousand percent. So what was the real motivation? How were these guys or in this case, uh, the gentleman such a swashbuckler that he didn't bother balancing the costs and benefits or he actually did. And it came out on the plus side. Javier, uh, how, how do you explain that? Well, I think that there were two reasons that was he was very keen. One is the uh, reason that he went first into uh, Libya was because the government of Qatar, which is another big oil producer and a big gas producer, asked him, can you help us? And Qatar was at the time playing big in global politics and was the backers of the rebels in Libya. So one, he wanted to be on the good side of his friends of the government in Qatar because that means more business in Qatar and probably business that was very rewarding financially. Second, he was taking a big risk that if the rebels win the war, they are going to remember who was the guy who helped them win. And Libya is a big oil producer and they're going to be selling oil forever uh, or at least for a long time. So Vitor will be there to help them. And then I suppose that he always thought, well, if things get really badly and the rebels don't win, the Libyan government has a big sovereign wealth fund with billions of dollars, and those dollars are overseas. And I have a bunch of friends in the British government, because I'm a big donor of the Conservative Party. Surely my friend David Cameron, the prime minister of uh, Britain at that point, will come to help me and maybe some of that money that is overseas can be diverted my way. So he was not making a blind bet on the war. He had a few allies, but it's, uh, yeah, these guys operate on a different risk-reward consideration. And for them, going into a war is something that just they do. And of course, uh, commodities are always important. It's a, it's obviously a, a truism, also always important in a war. I mean, some would argue that the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor might not have happened had Franklin Roosevelt not cut off oil to Japan. And in a more benign way, I suppose, there's that cliche about an army moves on its stomach, something. There's some cliche about how food is important to soldiers or else uh, they can't fight. So, goes without saying, commodities are important to everyone in terms of food supply, energy supply, water. And in the world for sale, you give the impression that at least for a certain period of time, and you tell me it seems like the high time was the 90s and the early 2000s, it was pretty much a handful of players that were dominant in the commodity sector. First of all, tell us a little bit about those players and how is it that just a handful could dominate when billions, literally billions of people's lives literally depended on those products? First of all, what the, the, the commodity traders that we, we are talking about are the physical commodity traders. A lot of people will think about a commodity trader and may think about 
those trading pits in Chicago when we actually have open outcry trading, shouting orders in the exchanges of Chicago, or they may think about someone in Wall Street just trading behind a, a big computer. The ones that we are talking about are the physical traders, the guys who are actually buying and selling a ship full of crude oil or a, or a container full of, of some metal or a big trucks full of, of, of grain. And, and yes, you are absolutely right. These are uh, a, a small group of traders. There are very few companies. There are about five large international oil traders that control about 25% of global supply and demand. Five or six uh, grain traders control the bulk of international grain and oil seeds trading. And two companies are responsible for most trading on metals like copper and aluminium, which are key for our daily lives. Everything that we, we use has a, a bit of, um, you own an iPhone, that iPhone has quite a bit of uh, copper and quite a bit of aluminium. And that market is just controlled by, the, by two trading houses. What's the reason? Uh, because they're very profitable, so you will in mind that then everyone will want to go there is a business that has a bit of a high barrier of entry. It takes years to get what they call a trading book, which is, in effect, a collection of supply and, and demand deals, deals with miners or oil companies or the rebels in Libya, which are going to supply you with commodities, be copper or be zinc or be oil or natural gas. And then you need contracts on the other side with consumers. And Compiling those relationships takes a long time. It's also a business that requires a, a certain amount of adventure in a, in a way. I mean, you really have to be comfortable taking quite a lot of risks and taking quite a lot of geopolitical risks and credit risks. You are buying or, or selling to companies often in um, developing countries and, and often in, in very difficult places. You are... Uh, in the business of supplying a metal like cobalt, which goes on every battery. So you are buying a Tesla, you are buying a bit of cobalt. And if you are a, a, a commodity trader engaged on that metal, it means going in the middle of Africa in a very difficult place in Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and not every company and not every businessman is willing to do that and operate in those difficult jurisdictions. So traditionally, this has been a business that has been dominated by only a few companies. And what is more, those companies often are controlled by a very few number of individuals. These companies are mostly privately owned. And in most cases, it's one, two, or perhaps in a few cases, maybe 25 of the, of the top employees of those companies who control the company. So it's not just a business dominated by a small number of companies, but those companies are also controlled by a very small number of, of individuals. They are not publicly listed companies in general. Okay. You've used the term control. You've used the word dominate. But what does that mean? I, I served in the White House during energy crises, during the first Gulf War, and I advised in subsequent situations. And I wrote the National Energy Strategy, at least the first draft of that for the White House at one point, and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve report. I'm not saying that to boast. I'm saying it modestly. We knew that, in fact, we didn't have much power to do much about these things. 
So the fact that there may be a limited number of players involved, what kind of market power does that give them? Back in, oh, I don't know, when the 1950s or 1960s, when the so-called seven sisters who ran the world's energy fields, Exxon and the like, uh, announced that they would cut the price of their Middle East posted price by 7%, and I guess they could get away with that. Are the commodity players that you're talking about, that you've, you've used the words dominate and control in association with, do they have pricing power? Can they raise or lower prices as they like in order to generate their excess profits? Jack, what do you think? I think for the most part, probably in the way that you mean, no. You know, Javier said earlier, the five largest oil trading companies have 25% of the global oil market. That is a very big market share, and we talk about them being very influential and important in the market, in particular because not only do they have a large chunk of the market, but also they are the most active players in the end of the market that sets the price, the spot market. You know, If you're looking at who's trading physical barrels of North Sea oil around the Brent contract, which sets the price of Brent futures, it is those five commodity traders, plus a few of the big oil companies that have active trading books, and that's a very large percentage of the trades that set those prices. But do they have, does any one of them have the ability to, you know, make the oil price $100 rather than $70? Not in a sustainable way, certainly not today. Maybe that that may have been true, uh, you know, 50 years ago, and probably it was true for a while for the Seven Sisters, you know. Again, I would argue that probably they couldn't fight against the fundamentals of supply and demand for very long, even the Seven Sisters, and and they didn't forever. But particularly today in a very large market where, you know, there's, there's lots of sources of demand and, and of supply. I think it's, it's very hard, even for a company that has a very large share of the market and even that's well capitalized by the standards of commodity traders to push the price of oil to be much higher than it ought to have been for a very long period of time. That said, there are plenty of examples of commodity traders manipulating markets over a short period of time or manipulating corners of markets. You know, if you're looking at specific prices of fuel oil or some particular grade of gasoline or jet fuel in some particular market, then absolutely. I mean, we have examples of regulators bringing cases against them and demonstrating that they have absolutely the power to manipulate the markets if they want to. In the world for sale, uh, Jack and Javier, you do a real masterful job of explaining the history and some of the tectonic movements that changed commodity markets. And I, I want to give a little anecdote you're, you are, of course, familiar with, and that'll be a sort of launching pad for you to explain what's changed in the last 40 years and some of the historical trends or tectonic plates that have moved. So back in 1980, the world seemed frightened, intellectuals in particular, that we were running out of commodities, that we were running out of gas and oil and, and food. Uh, there was a famous biologist named Paul Ehrlich who wrote books about the population time bomb. And I think he showed up on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson at the time multiple times to warn the world to stop having children because we're not going to be able to feed them and we're not going to be able to provide enough fuel for them to ride their automobiles. Well, there was an economist or business professor named Julian Simon who disagreed with this idea and confronted Ehrlich with a bet. And Simon turned to Ehrlich, this was 1980, and said, I want you to choose any commodities you like, 
And let's bet whether those prices will go up or go down. Well, of course, Ehrlich took the bet because he thought we were running out of everything. Prices were going to go into the stratosphere. And I think uh, they bet on copper and nickel and tin and a a few other uh, metals. Well, it turned out at the end of the decade, Ehrlich had lost dramatically all five of the commodities they chose had actually plunged in price during the 1980s. So just with that little story, I'd like you guys to share some of the most, what do you think the most important trends or changes have been in the world economy since 1980 that are affecting the commodity markets? Okay, let, let me start there because it's, it's, a, it's about oil, which is my one of my favorite areas. I, I think that the first big transformation of the commodity market happens just before that bet is 73 and 79, the two big oil crises. And not just because the price of oil goes through the roof, uh, it goes from less than or about $4 in 1972 to more than $30 in 1980, but because the market changed completely. Pre uh, the early 70s, the, the oil market, as told you were saying earlier, was controlled by the Seven Sisters. It was a vertical integration. Exxon was producing on Exxon-controlled oil fields in the Middle East, putting their oil on an Exxon ship, sending it to the US to be refined on an Exxon refinery to be sold in a in an Exxon gas station. That vertical integration breaks down when the uh, Middle East countries and North African countries uh, nationalize their oil industry. And then it is not longer Exxon or Shell or BP or Chevron who are selling that oil, but it's all of a sudden the countries of OPEC who are selling the oil. So it's the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Iraqis, the Libyans, the Iranians in particular, who are selling the oil. And they sell a lot of that oil through the oil traders that became the best friends of OPEC countries that at that point, all of a sudden, have a lot of oil to sell that they are no longer um, given to the international oil companies. But they don't have much experience of what to do with that oil or how to sell it. And the last thing that they want to do is sell it through the companies that they just kick out of those countries. So they find the traders as their perfect ally. And what we have at the very same time that the traders rise is we see an international spot market for crude oil. Crude oil until then more or less was fixed price, whatever the international oil companies decided that that was the price of the day. And often for years, the price will just simply not change. The price of oil was the same price in January uh, that it was in December. That spot market became very important, and that is where the price of oil gets fixed or gets uh, set. And that is a market that is in the hands of the commodity traders. And that's why we, for years, we, we refer to that market, the spot market, as the Rotterdam market, because a lot of the traders were at the port, at the Dutch port, of Rotterdam and the international oil market was known as the Rotterdam market because of that. That's, I think, the first big economic and political shift that changed the commodity market over the last uh, 45, 50 years. And of course, we will get to the, the question of China and the explosion in China's growth and its rapacious appetite 
to, I would say, dominate the commodities market or at least dominate access to the commodities market. Just going back uh, just a little bit of uh, of history before we leap forward again, I think part of the, the, the story of Julian Simon winning the bet was his understanding as an economist that when prices go up, it leads to more exploration uh, and leads to a search for alternatives. I've reminded listeners to this podcast before that back in 1980, when Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich made that bet, Ronald Reagan was debating Jimmy Carter on television to become president of the United States. And when asked about the energy crisis at the time, because as Javier, you pointed out, 1979 was another OPEC uh, oil disruption. Uh, Jimmy Carter talked about the need to conserve and the fact we were running out of resources and so on. And Ronald Reagan, in his folksy, charming way, said, well, I'm told by engineers and geologists that we have something under the ground that they call shale and that we can access shale oil. And I'm told by geologists that this might provide a hundred years worth of energy and fossil fuels. Well, most audience members and most reporters uh, scoffed and said, who is this silly old man? And what conspiracy theorist is he listening to to imagine that there's a way out of this energy crisis that has something to do with shale? Well, the point is, as energy prices went up, there was a search that led to horizontal drilling, that led to exploration in places from, you know, Kazakhstan to Uzbekistan, and ultimately to shale oil and gas and oil seeds and, and so on ar around the world. But now we're living in an interesting post-pandemic time as this pandemic is ending. And interestingly, just sticking with energy for a moment, we saw this wild upswing in commodity prices until a couple of weeks ago. It's rolled over, yet oil seems to be grinding higher. So rather than separating the, or sorry, lumping them all together, the commodity markets, can you sort of tell listeners today what's distinct, what seems to be distinguishing the oil market, the energy markets from other commodities that seem a little bit tempered in the last couple of weeks? I think that the, the big difference is that a lot of um, commodities that were rising early were linked to the fact that we all were living at home and have quite a lot of time to buy things. So we went a bit, uh, the way I put it is, we went a bit emerging market uh, in America and, and in Europe. We rich countries, usually the citizens spend a significant amount of their wealth of their income on services. We go out, we eat out, we have dinner, we go to the theater, we go to the cinema, we take foreign holidays, those were things that we couldn't do anymore because all the lockdown restrictions. So we were at home, or at least I was at home, and probably spending way too much money on Amazon and other online e-commerce things and, and buying things. And those things are made of metals, uh, buying a new TV screen that has some copper inside. Uh, uh, some people were doing home improvement, uh, building a new garden area that just were buying timber, et cetera, et cetera. But what has changed now is that now we have more mobility. Lockdown has been eased because of vaccinations. So all of a sudden we are back to not being buying things, but going into services. And that means mobility. That means taking a plane for the first time to 
to go to the West Coast or go to somewhere overseas. It means driving a lot more to visit relatives and, and family, and that means oil. So that's the reason that um, I think that some of the materials earlier were rising and now has been tempered. But on the other hand, you have oil, which is more associated with mobility, which is uh, the, the price is, is increasing. The other big difference is that some commodity markets do have cartels that control supply. That was a lot of the things of the 40s, the 50s, and 60s, and uh, there were lots of different cartels. But now a big one remains, and that one remains in oil, and that's OPEC. And the other big reason that um, oil prices continue to go higher is that while we are beginning to see a reaction uh, similar to what you were saying about the debate between um, Simon and Helric, is that we saw a big increase, for example, on the price of timber, but then we saw a supply reaction. The supply came, reacted to high prices, and, and the price came down. In the case of oil, OPEC is controlling the supply, is refusing to really let it go, keeps cutting production. And that's the other reason that we have higher prices with uh, Brent crude trading at more than $75 because OPEC uh, is not increasing production a lot, although probably it's going to start increasing now. And there is a meeting now coming where we are expecting Saudi Arabia and Russia to agree on production increases. Jack, uh, I've got two questions. You can take them in whatever order you want. The oil rig count in the U.S., the Baker Riggs oil count, is still far, far below its peak from, what, 2014 or so. It seems that oil producers are reluctant to get back in the game, perhaps because they think this is a temporary blip. I don't know. Perhaps you've got a hypothesis of why the spigots have not already been been turned on. So actually, why don't we stick with that question? Why, why do you think that with $74 a barrel oil, we're actually not getting uh, greater supply or much uh, more supply out of the system? I think there's a few things going on, but they add up to investors being less willing to deploy capital in oil production. I mean, in the shale industry in particular, we've had a period of quite a lot of years where lots of money has been invested in shale. Production has increased before last year, of course, before the pandemic, but all of the earnings were recycled into increasing production more. And the shift that's happened over the last year or 18 months, or even perhaps slightly longer, is much more focus on making a return to shareholders, which means investing less in production. And the other thing that's happening, uh, you know, most obviously in Europe, but also very much in the US, is investors beginning to say, we want to pay more attention to climate change. That means not increasing production of fossil fuels. We don't want you to spend your money on developing new oil deposits. We want you to return it to us instead or invest in something green. And you combine those things. And that means that you have less of a, an immediate investment response to higher prices. I think the jury's out. We'll see how high prices get and what that means in terms of an investment response. I suspect that at some price, I mean, for sure, at some price, I suspect that we may well get to that price uh, where we get enough people investing in shale again to start to see a, a more meaningful supply response than we've seen so far. But so far, you know, we're still testing that hypothesis. Uh, and now, Jack, I'll present my second question <laughs> on the subject. And that is, uh, Javier had mentioned OPEC. And, and I have to confess that a number of years ago, I wrote a piece, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed about how 
the U.S. should pursue antitrust remedies and break up OPEC. And I don't know that I'm convinced they've got as much power as Javier thinks, but have you been impressed by uh, the cohesion of OPEC and even Russia and Saudi Arabia to restrain production over the last couple of years? Uh, typically, there'd be more infighting, backbiting, and cheating. They seem as if they've been uh, in more of a cord than historically has been the case. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends exactly what period over the last couple of years you're asking about, because if we look back to February, March last year, we were writing about Russia and Saudi Arabia falling out and Saudi Arabia launching a price war. And indeed, in the teeth of the pandemic, that's what pushed oil prices down into negative territory for the first and who knows, possibly the last time ever. So, you know, it hasn't been an entirely harmonious last couple of years. But yes, certainly since uh, after they they patched things up after that, it has been a, a surprisingly, perhaps surprisingly, cohesive performance. I think part of that is driven by my answer to the last question. You know, they're beginning to see that actually investment in things like shale and other supply by large Western oil companies around the world is faltering. And so that creates an opportunity for them to really gain market share and have more of a, both more influence and also more revenues from oil. And so that's a pretty good opportunity if you're OPEC. You don't want to, you don't want to blow it. So that's maybe driving some of this cohesion. Uh, Javier, how sincere or determined do you think uh, in Saudi Arabia, MBS and other leaders of OPEC nations are in talking about not just diversifying their economy, but diversifying their energy economy, focusing more on renewables? Is this just what's now known as greenwashing? Or do you think that Saudi Arabia, for instance, actually imagines a situation where the country itself uh, will be running not on the reserves that bubble up so readily from the soil, but from something else, whether from the sun or the breeze across the Arabian Peninsula? I think that there is a bit of a, a sincere attempt to diversify the economy out of oil into other things. But diversify means probably moving from 95% reliance on oil today to perhaps 70% reliance on oil in the future. Is that a big diversification? Yes, it is, because of the starting point. It's just basically there is no other industry than oil. So you go from almost 100% to 70%. You could argue that that's a big diversification. But is a diversification that changed the country? No. At the end of the day, Saudi Arabia is going to remain reliant on high, high prices of oil and high production of oil for years and decades to come. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. It will only happen if we find a way to make electric vehicles a complete reality and we have all moved out of oil, then they will have to diversify by force. But until then, I don't think so. And while they talk about renewables and solar power, and certainly you could have a lot of solar power in places like Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia itself has announced that it's increasing, uh, it's going to spend more money to increase his production capacity from about 12 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. So yes, they, are, they talk a game of diversification, but it's just going to be an economy that is going to remain dependent on oil for many years to come. And, and just switching a continent, uh, 
well, almost switching a continent. Let's let's go over to China for a moment. How sincere or determined do you think the diversification pledge is there? Or do you think it's a matter of the number of coal-fired plants uh, will continue to go up and up? It's just that they will be complemented by so-called green energy. I think that you are right on that. I think that China will, will remain reliant on coal. It's that the new plants that they build, they will try to build more solar and, and certainly more wind power. But at the end of the day, if China is going to reduce its reliance on coal, it's going to happen very much the same way that it happened in the United States and it has happened in Europe. And that way has not been switching from coal into wind power or solar. That has been switching in a large proportion into gas. So China will try to increase a lot of solar and wind, but that has its limits. But I suppose that they, what we're going to see is an increase on the reliance of gas. And we are already seeing China emerging as a huge importer of natural gas in the form of LNG, which is good business for countries like Qatar, Australia, and now the US, who have become big exporters of LNG. But now, if you buy my hypothesis that the number of coal-fired plants continues to grow, then China's net contribution to carbon emissions will be going up and up. It's just a matter of, well, it could have been worse. But also, some of those Chinese emissions are our emissions. We shifted a lot of manufacturing into China. We reduce our pollution at home. But in a way, then we are imported it back when we are um, getting all, all, all the gadgets that we are buying from China these days. Yeah, I think that I think that's a valid point. I wanted to take us back to one of the opening themes in terms of the behavior of the commodity traders and the commodity companies that that had dominated. So now we live in an era where China has a greater incentive to not just monitor, but try to dominate and affect commodity prices. They probably have a bigger incentive than any other nation in the world because of all that they consume. I'm sure you've got the statistics at your fingertips, the the degree to which uh, China once upon a time, maybe as recently as 20 years ago, probably consumed as many commodities as, you know, Italy or or Greece or the UK, and now is half the world economy in terms of demand. But is China in its international behavior, is it the new swashbuckling country? That is, when China goes to Africa to try to secure production, whether it is of bauxite, diamonds, or natural gas, or even going to a more advanced place like Australia. Is it a normal business transaction? Is it no different than if, you know, German or Brits from energy companies or governments showed up? Or is China showing up and acting in a way that's um, different and perhaps more colorful as they try to secure access to the commodities? I mean, I think it's very clear when China has been going out or Chinese companies have been going out and buying up natural resources around the world, you know, particularly if they've been investing, say, in mines or in oil fields in Africa, as you said, or elsewhere, there is a very clear goal, which is to supply the needs of China. And that's fairly explicit. And often they're financed by Chinese uh, state banks who have that specific mandate. And I guess... In some instances, that's also true for other countries. You see, for example, 
Japanese companies doing the same thing. But that's quite different from certainly the trading houses that we're writing about in the book, whose motivation uh, is almost always, almost entirely and, you know, clearly and sometimes rapaciously to make money and nothing else. That is what they're interested in. Whereas the Chinese are going, and in the most, for the most part, they're going in order to secure the resources that China needs. And that extends to their traders as well. And one of the interesting kind of developments that we're seeing in the last few years is China investing not only in buying bauxite mines or cobalt mines or whatever it might be, but also investing in international trading companies because they recognize, I think, the importance, the profitability of some of the international traders, the independent traders that we've been writing about, and they want to do it for themselves as well. And are the Chinese proposing, quote, market deals, unquote, or are they basically saying to, you can choose which country they're going into, whether it's, you know, Angola or Chad or even Sri Lanka, what do you need? You know, here's what we need from you. Oh, uh, we'll pay you the market price for the product production of that mine for the next 50 years. And what? You need a bridge? Here you go. You know, you need a tunnel? There you go. You need an airport? Sign here, sign here, sign here. And of course, these are recourse loans. And if you don't pay us back, we're going to take away your tarmac and your pier as they did in Sri Lanka. So again, are they proposing market deals or are the pockets of China so deep now and the geopolitical drive to dominate so aggressive that they are proposing deals that are beyond what trading companies in the past would have proposed? I think in most cases are beyond because China comes with a lot of lending from the state, from the state-owned banks, development banks, and and some countries in developing nations, particularly in Africa, sometimes in Latin America, the Chinese proposition from Beijing is very simple. We are going to buy your commodities, or we're going to invest in your mines, on your oil fields, on your farms. We are going to be lending money to the political pet projects of the president of the time on that country, and we are not really asking more questions. We are, Beijing proposition is, we are not Washington, we are not Paris, we are not the International Monetary Fund who is gonna send you a team of inspectors to your country and tell you how to run your country and where you can spend the money and where you cannot spend the money. We are not like that. We are just lending the money to you and you do whatever you want with it. The only attachment that China often puts is if your political pet project, Mr. President, is to build a highway, we will request that you build it with a Chinese company. So you often have a situation in which China is buying the commodities, is providing the financing, is not asking many questions about how that country is spending the money, but it does ask that if you are building an airport, you use Chinese companies to build the airport. It's a different proposition from the trading houses, and certainly it's a very different proposition from a a poor Latin American country or a poor African country having to go to the International Monetary Fund and beg for some financing, because the IMF is likely to provide the the money, but it's going to ask for a lot of control over the country. Well, and at the same time, this is an era in which publicly traded companies in the private sector are feeling enormous pressure to inspect for unethical labor practices at mines and factories. And if China is not hobbled 
by those concerns, it certainly gives them a quicker route to sign a deal than an American or European country. Would you agree, Jack? Yeah, I think that's certainly right. Although I also think that in many cases, the American and European companies' belief in adhering to all of these norms is often paper thin. You know, when you look at many cases, you know, one market, for example, where this is a is a very pertinent and much discussed concern is cobalt, because lots of cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and a, a proportion of it is mined artisanally, which means essentially by hand, often by people without much safety equipment, some of them occasionally, or not occasionally, in some cases, children. More than occasionally. Been a pressing concern in, in, in the cobalt market. And yes, lots of people are concerned about pictures of people mining in, in by hand in, in Congo uh, without any safety equipment. But when you look at who is buying the batteries that are produced by, you know, usually there's a, there's a chain of several companies in between whoever buys the cobalt from the Congo and the battery and the actual product that it ends up going into. And if you look at who the end consumer of those batteries and those products are, it's all of the large Western companies in the world. And very, very few of them are asking all of the serious questions you need to, to make sure that there's absolutely no chance that there could be any artisanally mined co or cobalt that's been mined under unethical conditions in their supply chain. So yes, it turns out it ends up being a lot of Chinese companies that do the first or second step in that supply chain, but the seventh or eighth step ends up being all of us the same way. Linguistically, it's fascinating the term artisanal to be used for people crawling into a mine and, and getting metals and dirt under their fingers because we use the term artisanal to describe a, a candle maker or someone making ravioli in their back kitchen. Yeah, I don't love it. Uh, so linguistically, uh, thank you for, for, share, for sharing that. We, we are now dealing in a climate, excuse the pun, uh, where companies are at least saying, you say it's paper thin, Jack, that they're focused on labor practices and the ethics of them. And they're, they're also, especially in the energy sector, under enormous pressure to diversify out of fossil fuels, even though a fossil fuel may be in their very name. 20 years ago, BP started calling itself Beyond Petroleum. And of course, it was just a couple of weeks ago that Exxon's board was penetrated by climate change activists who seem to be successful now in having Exxon and, and other energy companies uh, change their mandate. Is that also paper thin, Jack? Is Exxon and BP going really to be continuing to do the fossil fuel pursuit? Or in fact, have they changed? And I suppose you could say, well, someone else will pick up the mantle and do the dirty work for them. What do you think? I think it depends who it's coming from. You know, you look quite clearly, uh, Exxon was not, didn't want to have a couple of activists on its board. And the mantra of the company's management uh, has been very much in favor of fossil fuels. But when the company's investors get together and vote to change its behavior or to put some directors on the board who are going to listen to a different audience, then in a public Western company, that forces a change of behavior. And I mean, you've seen the same thing happening through similar means and other means in other large Western oil companies. And I think that it already has changed behavior and is going to change behavior more. I guess my worry on things like cobalt in the batteries in our smartphones and electric vehicles is 
in those instances, that's not coming from investors. That's got to come from consumers. And consumers, while we don't like to look at, you know, a, a piece of investigative journalism that links our smartphone to mining in Congo using children or people with no safety equipment, we don't do that much to demand of the companies that we buy products from that they actually live up to those ideals. So, Jack, you've twice made me feel a little bit guilty about being a consumer. I am a consumer, too, I'm afraid to say. A consumer and a hypocrite, no doubt. <laughs> okay. So, all right. You're at, uh, you're at a cocktail party, if those things will ever exist again. Uh, and someone comes up to you and says, you know, I'm very focused on the environment and uh, labor practices. I'm a very progressive kind of guy, but I just won the lottery. And so I'm trying to decide whether to buy a Tesla or a Toyota Corolla that is not all battery powered. Is there any reason to think if I buy the Tesla, I'm being kinder to the environment than if I buy a gasoline and powered engine? Oof, wow, that's quite a that's quite an involved question. Uh, at bottom, you're you're trying to weigh up the the difference between emissions that could lead to climate change around the world uh, in whatever it's going to be, 20, 50, 100 years versus the conditions of, of people mining for, for cobalt in Congo. Although, you know, Tesla has actually been using, uses batteries that use not that much cobalt these days. Um, but it's not simply a matter of the, uh, the labor. It's a matter of, you know, those precious minerals, what it takes to mine them in terms of whether it's, you know, damage to the terrain. And it's the question of, do they break down over time? What, ha what do you do with those metals afterwards? So it is the sort of totality. By the way, in asking the question, I, I don't have the answer myself. I'm, I just assume that you guys have thought about it. Sure. I mean, I think the answer, to my mind, the answer has to be, we have to do something to halt climate change. And that's got to mean emitting less carbon over time. So I think we need to move, you know, where the technology exists, like electric vehicles, we need to move away from, from using fossil fuels. So, But also, uh, Javier, it depends on where your local power plant is, where you, you plug your Tesla into the wall, but where does that power come from? Well, I was going to say, where, where is this cocktail taking place, Todd? Because if it's taking place in, say, France, where 80 plus percent of the electricity is coming from nuclear power, carbon free, emissions free. Yes, you have the problem with the nuclear radioactive waste, but let's put that aside for one moment. I will say, yeah, definitely buy yourself a Tesla, charge with emissions free electricity, and the planet is going to be better off. You may be a bit guilty of some of the metals that go into the Tesla, particularly on the batteries, but I will say that all net, if you are thinking that you are a good citizen of the planet, probably that's the good thing to do. If the cocktail is taking place in Beijing, where a lot of the power is coming from coal, I will say probably the planet is a lot better off if you continue driving your uh, Toyota Corolla with gasoline, because that's going to emit less uh, CO2 that is going to be using power from burning coal. So it very much depends on where in the planet we are, because if not, if we move with electric vehicles in a big way and we have not really resolved where our electricity is coming, we simply are replacing one kind of emissions with another kind of emissions. And the net effect is not very much different to the planet. 
Uh, one of the uh, more recent developments in the commodity markets is, of course, cryptocurrency. I don't know whether in your work you're starting to cover crypto as a commodity. Certainly the personalities there and the ability for just a few individuals to have enormous power seems evident. All it takes is Elon Musk to emit one tweet and the price of Bitcoin can go up or down by 20%. Do you see cryptocurrency becoming a more standardized market, such as the foreign exchange market? Or do you think it will, for a very long time, be, have its own unique and maybe unfathomable characteristics in trading? Crypto is something that we don't touch upon on, on the book. I think that I, I do have an interest on crypto linked to commodities, and it's the fact that cryptocurrency mining, and again, a, a very interesting way of using the language, calling mining what is actually done by computers, but it just consumes an enormous amount of electricity. So um, we often say that aluminum is a basically power all put together because to produce aluminum, you need to use a lot of electricity to melt the bauxite into, into the metal. And you could almost say the same thing about Bitcoin. It's almost a derivative of power because you consume, I mean, the whole global Bitcoin industry is consuming as much, as much electricity as a middle-sized uh, European country, which is just mesmerizing to me. And that's one of the reasons that we see a lot of Bitcoin mining happening in some remote corners of China, where power prices are very low from burning coal. In places like Iran, where they are just burning crude oil to produce electricity, or in places where there is cheap hydroelectric. But that has been mostly my, my interest in cryptocurrencies. I'm still a bit mesmerized of just seeing the, the ups and downs in a similar way of the ups and downs on gold that very often I did never understood why it was moving up or down. I'm, I'm glad you brought up gold because it, it brings me to um, another question about, about the markets. And, and that is this. The price of gold is a function of a number of things. In some cases, it can be demand for jewelry. Uh, in China, the number of weddings. In India, the discovery of new mines or the extraction rates at old mines. And there's also speculation involved. And uh, often gold is cited as a possible inflation hedge. In this current climate where we've seen, up until a couple of days ago, effectively, this big run-up in commodity prices, how much of that do you think has been real demand for the real use of commodities such as lumber to build homes and so on? Or how much of it has been speculation and looking for inflation hedges? Because if it's the latter, then there might be a big air pocket underneath these commodities if it's not actually driven by real demand. Jack? Yeah, I think it's been both. I mean, undoubtedly, there's been extraordinarily strong demand. And the thing that's been really unusual, we've had the whole world's demand moving in the same direction at the same time, which doesn't happen very often. So you've had extremely strong demand in the US and in Europe and in Asia, in China, for pretty much all commodities. Uh, possibly with the exception of jet fuel. But other than that, you know, agriculture, metals, lumber, oil, energy, across the board, you've had this amazing rebound in demand as the whole world has recovered from the terrible year that last year was economically. It's also undoubtedly true that you've got 
there's been some significant speculation on top of that. And I think, you know, you mentioned the last uh, few days or probably weeks it will be when this podcast goes out. We've seen some of that speculation come out of the market. You've had the, the combination of, you know, the Fed talking about tapering and the Chinese government wanting to crack down on high prices. And that's taken, you know, the two most powerful governments in the world, uh, both taking aim at commodity prices in one way or another, has had its effect. And some of that is uh, that we've seen is speculative froth coming out of the markets, I think. Well, Jack and, and Javier, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. And The World for Sale is a wonderful book. And, and I'd like to end by allowing you to tell one more story, whoever wants to jump in. You've got a, a wonderful story about Jamaica on the brink of bankruptcy and a shortage and a commodity guru swooping in to somehow save that island from at least a disastrous weekend, if not beyond that. Uh, Jack, to share with us that story. Well, that story was told to me by the man who was the minister of, of mines and energy in Jamaica in the 1980s, who's now of quite a grand old age himself. And he told me this story. So Jamaica in those days were, I mean, it's still uh, not an insignificant producer of bauxite and alumina, which are the raw materials to make aluminium. But in those days, it was, a, it was one of the world's largest producers of bauxite and alumina. But it had been hard hit by the rise in oil prices. And in the early 1980s, its economy was in a pretty dire state. The, the guy who told me the story, who was one of the top ministers in the cabinet, he was in government one Friday afternoon. And an official came to see him from the central bank. And Jamaica had been importing one cargo of oil every month, which was supplied Jamaica's oil needs. It had one refinery, and that was that's what kept fuel petrol on the streets of Jamaica. And the official from the central bank came to him and said, hey, we've got a problem. We're supposed to be buying this cargo of oil, but we don't have any money. The central bank can't pay for it. And so he thought, huh, that is, that is indeed a problem. <laughs> Jamaica had been, you know, a fairly febrile political place for, for the previous few years. The economy was in a bad state. He thought, God, if, if the gasoline stations run out of fuel, then this is going to be the end for the government. Uh, and so he calls the only person he can think of calling who might be able to do something over the course of a weekend to avert this crisis. And that's Mark Rich, the, the head of Mark Rich & Co., probably the world's top oil trader at the, at the time. Mark Rich was in, in his home in, in Zug in Switzerland, two in the morning. He gets this call from this minister of the Jamaican government, slightly grumpily. He's like, oh, what, what's going on? The minister tells him, he says, okay, give me an hour, puts down the phone. And in an hour's time, he's diverted a cargo of oil that was on its way to the US from Venezuela. And now suddenly it's on its way to Jamaica, delivers some oil without even a contract being signed and averts Jamaica's fuel crisis. And, you know, the, the counterpoint to that is, you know, this very clear from him talking to him that he absolutely believes that Mark Rich saved the skin of the Jamaican government. On the other hand, Mark Rich then got contracts to buy alumina from Jamaica for the next 30 years and made an awful lot of money out of it. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets, the penultimate episode of An Emerging Energy Framework for the 22nd Century, will feature Susan Sackmar, former chair of the Jane Goodall Institute and author of Energy for the 21st Century, Opportunities and Challenges for LNG. It's airing next Saturday morning, and I hope you can join us. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, 
visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.